quickly that they, they're clapping for you, not for me. As you should. As you should clap for him. And I'm not doing that to yell at you. I'm doing that to, to let you know how beautiful it is that you are a part of a church where, sure, why not, John? Uh, where John's going to hand out Bibles if you want to just wave. He doesn't actually care what I'm saying. He wants to get the Bibles out as fast as possible. Uh, you know, what's in that book is probably more important than what I'm going to say anyway. So, uh, no, you, you just, I, I want you to rejoice with me in the fact that you have a youth pastor who actually wants to pastor youth and not just like play around or do cool things or whatever the case is, but to use those things to pastor. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Um, there are many beautiful things that are going on. I'm excited to share a couple of different uh, of those things with you. By the way, my name is Brad. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, and it is my pleasure to share the Word of God with you this morning. It is my favorite thing in life to do. Uh, but before we get to that, as Amy already mentioned, uh, we have the Wongs visiting us. And so much of you are probably new to our church that we realized that many of you, Wongs, come on up, uh, many of you may not even know who the Wongs are, what they're about, and what they do. And so that's unacceptable. And we need, to, we need to fix that. And so we're bringing them up. Uh, and we wrote down some questions because we want to make sure um, to use the time the, the way that we best possibly can uh, to cover who are the Wongs, what are the Wongs doing, and what does that mean in terms of our church as a whole? So this is Jordan and Johnny. And uh, tell us who you guys are. How would you guys meet? My name is Johnny. Yes. That's and, true. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to learn more about God, so I went to Moody Bible Institute, and I was uh, studying evangelism there and playing on the soccer team, and uh, Jordan was, uh, was driving the bus. <laughs> I was, because I'm a great bus driver. <laughs> no, um, I actually loved soccer. Lots and lots. Kind of uh, in high school, that was my way to college. I was really excited to pay for college in SoCal, even though I grew up in northern Indiana. Going to go to SoCal, going to pay for college with school till I blew my knees. And God used that tragic event to take me to a place I didn't think I would go, even though I was always um, mission-minded. I didn't think I would go to Moody Bible Institute because it was cold in Chicago. <laughs> but that's where God took me. And I did meet Johnny because I couldn't get rid of my love for soccer. And so I drove the bus. <laughs> so soccer, obviously a really big deal. Um, it, with soccer being such a big deal, how did that turn into a relationship for the two of you guys? Uh, so um, I was trying to focus on the game and there was just so many distractions. <laughs> How do I follow that? <laughs> that is not in the script. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, because of my interest in soccer, even though it was so frustrating that, that Moody didn't have a team, um, they didn't have a team for girls. It's just, I don't know. Don't get into it. I'm not going to get into it. Um, I helped out with the guys' team however I could so I could stay connected with, with soccer. And that's how I um, first heard about his passion for Bass Country. Um, so anyways, after, I mean, we were friends, after he graduated from Moody, 
um, he brought a group of guys from Chicago to Truckee um, to be, be very missional on the slopes. They were ski instructors, and they brought these relationships they formed on the slopes to SBC. They were under the spiritual authority of the leadership at SBC, and they wanted to combine um, the mission, the mission field, with Christian fellowship. Um, how did I fit into that? I paid for gas to get them out here, um, and I prayed for them a lot, and then when I was visiting family in spring break in Southern California, I came up here for my first time to Northern California, hung out with them, definitely crashed and scorpioned a lot, playing, trying to snowboard, and uh, went back to Chicago. So during this time, I was a holy man of God on a, a mission <laughs> to serve him. <laughs> And my father calls me and he says, listen, I think I have the person here, the girl here who you should marry. And I said, no, you must be very mistaken because I'm going to go, I'm going to surf the north coast of Spain, Basque country, and learn this impossible language, and there's no missionaries there, and there's no church there, and I'm dope, and I do dope stuff, so that's what I'm going to go do, and on my timetable. And my dad's like, you can't do it alone. God's got a helper that's suitable for you. And I, it took me a long time to figure out that but once i did that i tattooed it on my arm and i married her and then <laughs> and then two days later we moved to uh to bass country did you catch that <laughs> okay just want to make sure that that didn't go over your heads <laughs> two days later they go to bass country i mean I, this is i don't quite understand how you could immediately get to this point take tell us more a little bit more like why is it that this even got put on your heart to begin with, that you would go so crazily and so quickly right after getting married? Yeah, yeah. so rewinding back to uh, growing up in the Caribbean, and my dad was translating the Bible to the language of his people, and growing up in youth group, hopefully like a lot of you guys are, and I keep hearing these sermons, sermons well preached on Matthew 28, and Jesus is throwing out some really heavy call-outs, asking us to do some really crazy stuff. And we can water it down, make it a little bit vanilla, or we can take our radical master at his word. And the more I heard about this, I saw the purpose that God had made me for was to make disciples. And I was charged with this, and I wanted to take these marching orders seriously. So I began to ask myself, even from an early age, hey, Johnny, where am I to make disciples? And uh, this question ended up bringing me to, to Reno after I was studying a little Spanish in Spain when I was 17 years old. We're rewinding big time here. And my youth mentor said, hey, I got a job for you at a, at a church in Nevada, and you can work with the youth group. And so I started working there at the youth group, and I started asking myself, hey, where can I make disciples? And at McQueen High School, down here, great educational system. I was just looking at this system, and I said, Where, who, needs to, who needs to hear the story of Jesus? And over there across the street, those are all the bad kids over there smoking across the parking lot. And you think, those guys for sure need to hear about Jesus because they wouldn't be smoking if they knew about Jesus. So this is a 17-year-old thinking this. And so I said, well, God, we got to go over there. And I'm talking to the disciples, the people in the youth group there, and I said, hey, we got... We got to go over there and talk to these people about Jesus. And in that process of going, we see a lot of extreme discomfort. I like to consider myself a social chameleon fitting in everywhere. But for a lot of people, this call to go over across that street to their own high schoolers was just too much. 
And a lot of times people stepped up to that challenge and said, even though I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to go over there and talk to not our people so that they too can hear the good news and have the opportunity to be made right with God. I love you, but you don't answer questions. <laughs> um, so I think what he's trying to say is that we had both been wrestling with this question of what does it mean to make disciples? How and where uh, do we make disciples? And God had been directing me um, through my passion for teaching and language and wanting to serve the lost um, to teaching English as a second language and linguistics at Moody. He gave me the opportunity to teach English in Vietnam and Bosnia and put into practice um, this theory that I had that English was going to be my ticket anywhere into the world to bring good news to closed places and hardened hearts. And so when um, God brought us together, it was obvious that we had been asking the same question in the same way, and we knew that God was calling us to the same place um, together. So take us then to now, now you feel united in purpose and in mission, and it has something to do with the Basque region. What, what happened? So at this point in the story, I'm like 22 years old, and I, I move into Basque country, so I'm like, I gotta, I'm going to use Xboxes as an Xbox outreach, because I don't speak Basque yet, but everyone speaks Halo. So, <laughs> so I was like, I had four Xboxes, and, uh, and I'm like, we're going to go over there and do youth ministry, because I grew up doing youth ministry. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play soccer, and I'm going to surf. Basically, all this is saying I have no plan. <laughs> well, I am the planner of our relationship. And together, um, together, God helped us form a missional platform that would reach our community, give back to our community, would bring um, respect, and we would have relationships. It's really hard to get into um, Basque culture. They're just really... Um, hard people. Maybe the ones on Arena were nicer because they've been Americanized. But um, anyways, and opening doors for us, and not just us, but for people to come to share the gospel and to plant seeds and to see a Basque church form in our small town, starting in our small town. Um, so Moody prepared us very well to live in a spiritual wasteland, and so we thought we were ready. And I mean, we were um, but honestly, without um, our SBC family, um, without it's our SBC okay family, and time. without our um, family, our spiritual family in Indiana, we would not have survived. We wouldn't have survived um, the loneliness, um, the marital struggles, or the lack of spiritual food. There is no church there. Um, not even like a bad one. Like there's just. <laughs> no church. <laughs> so we wouldn't have survived if it hadn't been for you guys as a body being our body. Yeah, un unpack that even, even more because, like I said, there's some people here that don't even know you, may not know the history of the relationship that we've had with you. How has SBC been a connection for you, and what does it look like for them to be connected to you? Okay, so 12 years ago, we felt this calling to go out and do and do cross-cultural ministry, and SBC owned that mission, and they sent us. They said, hey, you're doing awesome stuff preaching the word in Basque country. We want to send you guys. So as an extension, you guys generously gave to us. You supported us when we were with 
a car from 1987 and pushing it up a hill and you guys moved us to a van. You guys were so, gave so generously to us. So you guys cared for us and you cared for the well-being of my family. On the other side of the world, you guys sent pastors over to come check out our ministry. You guys sent interns to come over. Uh, some close family friends came over and encouraged us and you ministered to us uh, when we're here and when we're over there. Uh, and if it weren't for experiencing this healthy interaction with SBC, um, well, we're beginning to realize now that we totally depend on this relationship with you guys. Yeah, so you referred to the Basque region as a spiritual wasteland, and you were recognizing your need to depend on the church. What, what was the cost? What, what was actually, what were the obstacles that you were trying to, that, that God was using you for? Yeah, so um, obviously none of our family lives there. So we lost all of our, our family. Well, we said goodbye to them for a while. They're very supportive. Um, but we went and we didn't know either languages. And just so you know, Basque is completely different than Spanish. Um, they don't have anything in common. Um, and so it was really challenging to doubly lose, felt, what it felt like, lose my personality. I'm an English teacher and I see my students when they're trying to speak English they can't express who they are. Um, and I couldn't express who I was. And I had no friends. And I was living with this guy I had just married and had never lived with before. And uh, life was fun. <laughs> real, real fun. Yeah, but what we most missed out on was for our relationship to be really healthy, uh, we really should be around a healthy church like you guys. And we want that for other people. So by leaving it and going out, we kind of missed out on it for, for a long time. We would love others to experience it, but that was a, a consequence of the commission. So, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming then because of how much you're recognizing the church is important to you, you went over there and you started the best church that the Basque region has ever seen and everything has been <laughs> rainbows and butterflies. Totally then? blew up. Like awesome. thousands and thousands awesome. every morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. Um, so this infrastructure that I talked about earlier, this missional platform, has been enabling us to teach more than 1,000 students in our town of 25,000. Um, Johnny makes coffee for hundreds of people every week. But the wonderful thing that we've seen through the coffee shop in English school is that gospel seeds are being able to be planted. And for 10 years, we've been trying to establish this platform and raise three kids. We have a four, six, and eight-year-old. And um, as well, plant a church. And sleep. Um, <laughs> it, and, and so we've seen that... Um, when we were here in 2019, we said, guys, we're shifting our focus from our businesses and solely our businesses to mission, to church planting, um, to see the Basque people coming together and following Jesus in a real way, in a Basque way, whatever that looks like. Um, and we, we did that. We went back in 2019 and started a, um, a core group um, in our house. And then, well, you all know what happened. Right? And everything shut down. And um, coming back this past summer, we started restarting those groups now in our English school. Um, and we just found out, we realized that, man, we were so close to burnout. We can't do be everything for our businesses, be parents for our children, be good spouses, and plant a church. So 
Um, we joined a missions agency and have been um, raising support. And John's going to talk to you about that new phase. Yeah, you said it pretty well, but uh, we need your help to move forward with this next step. I can make a lot of coffee, but no, now about how how good, how good, yes, how good my latte art is. I mean, you're not getting into heaven off of latte art. Uh, so uh, it's about preaching the word and making disciples. So I'm leveraging my influence in my coffee shop, and we're going to do an apprenticeship program, and uh, we're going to tell people about Jesus, and we're going to plant a church. And we need your help to do it. Can't do it alone. So what's that help look like? Pray, please. Pray, pray, pray. We are looking for 15 to 20 um, individuals or families in the SBC body to commit to being our prayer warriors. Um, we had four people. We've already had several people who have adopted us, so it's not like 15 from scratch. But um, four additional people sign up during between services to be our prayer warriors, to get our monthly newsletters, to connect with us. We've got a Facebook group if you like that. And um, be committed to praying for us faithfully. Yeah, so we need to know who you are so that we can give you that prayer request. Find us in the lobby afterwards. Uh, give us your name and join on that. Number two, uh, we're asking God to provide uh, partners to give to this. Now, I don't need your money, but God has a lot of money that you guys happen to have right now So uh, to be in stewarding. So uh, I like that. what we're going to do, what we're going to do is throw out here, is I'm going to say, hey, God, listen, you've been so generous to us. Uh, we're 93% funded. We only have $700 more per month in sustained giving to transition us into church planning. We're asking some of you guys to stand up and, uh, and talk to us after this. Uh, wrap this up now so we can go back uh, fully funded. But we need to know who you guys are. We need to know uh, what your commitment is. And uh, do it today so that I can enjoy the rest of the week, please. <laughs> also not in the script. Um, <laughs> the last thing is to go. Go. Um, this summer, we are going to be, Lord, Lord willing, going to be doing a um, short-term missions trip focusing on the teenagers, my teens that I teach. Um, they're going to be tour guides of their land in your language. Um, so through these life-on-life -life interactions with teenagers, we are going to be sharing gospel, planting gospel seeds. Um, it might not look like that to you, but it is. Um, and so um, I'm going to be getting information to Esther, um, so if you're interested in information about that, contact, look, at, look for me or contact Esther, and she's going to be equipped with all that information that you will need um, to know more about that trip. Yeah, and if you want to talk to the Wongs more directly, they're going to be um, directly out that way when we're done uh, with our time together this morning. Please join up with them. But before they leave, I want to, uh, I want to pray for them. I want you to join me in this prayer. Um, that we can uh, wrap them up in it. I'm going to step behind you if that doesn't freak you out too much. God, I've, I've heard from these two about the darkness of that region, and I know that you find that unacceptable. How many people have turned their back on you for whatever their reasons are, and I love that these two want to help turn them back to you. God, bless them. Bless them by being able to see you at work in hearts. 
bless them with protection for their hearts, protect their marriage and their children, their ministries and their businesses. But God, embolden them by doing a great work in the Basque region. We know that that would be the biggest encouragement to these two. And so do that. Do something mighty. Do something miraculous in such a way that people would see the love that you have for them and the love that pours through these two, that they would know you and that they would worship you and we would rejoice together. We look forward to seeing this filled in faith. Amen. Thanks, guys. Okay. <clears throat> As I mentioned to you before, I'm really excited about sharing the, the text with you this morning. And one of the things, you notice that we have some communion plates that are out here. And one of the things that we do as a church with regularity is, is partake. We normally, partake is the only time you actually ever hear that word, part, is during communion time. I don't know if you guys say it at your house. Let us partake of dinner. But I hear it, I only hear it during communion time. So sometimes it'll slip out, the magic Christian word of partake. But we partake in communion here on a regular basis. And yet, as leaders, we've been getting a lot of questions recently about communion. Um, questions, questions like, I don't know whether I should be taking communion. Or um, is it right that like if you do communion wrong, bad things happen? Like I've heard that. Um, or should I let my kids take communion with us when we take communion? Um, and when people are asking questions like that directly to us, we know that what that means is that typically there are more people thinking those questions, but they're nervous about asking them. Um, and so as we are kind of in a transition stage before starting our next series, and this being a communion Sunday, Jesse asked me if I might be willing to come to you this morning and explain to you what communion is what it's about, where it comes from. Um, how many of you, just wave back at me, you don't have to like raise your hand loud and proud, but grew up in Roman Catholic households or Ro went to Roman Catholic church? Okay, a bunch, a bunch of you, all right? So you, you, maybe you've heard the word sacrament before, maybe, yes, no, maybe so. That, that communion is actually, uh, it's commonly known in the church as a sacrament. And there are three sacraments that even though we're not a Roman Catholic church here, that we continue to practice today. You already know what one of them is, the easy one, because I already told you what it is. Good. You're on it. Anybody know what the other two are? Baptism. Baptism nailed it. And this was the hardest one to think about because you don't think about it as a sacrament. Marriage. Who said? Nailed it. Gold star. Gold star. Yeah, because in these three things, these are rituals that we do in which we see God's grace through physical actions. In baptism, we are symbolizing our death and resurrection in Christ. In marriage, we are symbolizing combining the two male and female uh, individual natures of, of God together into that union. And when we take communion, there is a deep meaning with thousands of years of history behind it. And we want to make sure that you understand what it is. What, what's its history? Where does it come from? Why do we do it? When should we not do it? Before we jump in, I know that some of you are new to this church. Some of you might even be new to the faith. Some of you might not even be in the faith yet, and you're still trying to check it out. 
Inasmuch as it is my goal to try to be thorough in your understanding of what communion is, I'm going to have to kind of accelerate over some things. And we encourage you to come talk to us uh, if there's components of this that don't make sense or I didn't spend enough time explaining it. But it's also good that if you aren't new to the faith, if this is something you've been doing for a really long time, that you understand more clearly what it is that you're doing when you take communion, and then you join with us as leaders in helping the rest of the church to understand what's going on with that as well. But most importantly, I want to say this before I start. Inasmuch as I love teaching, and I've loved teaching in high schools and colleges through my history, uh, I, I love the academic environment. I do not want this to be some academic exercise. That's not what this is. If I just tell you a bunch of facts about communion and you're like, oh, cool, and then you leave, failure, waste of time. You don't need more facts about communion. What you need is to recognize what's happening so that you can properly worship a God who is properly worthy of worship. We want you to know what you're doing so that your worship can be more meaningful. That's what we're trying to do this morning. So pray with me as we begin this process. God, we know that you can do all things, and so we ask you, use this time as we discuss the story of communion to inform us, but inform us in a way that we would, that we would be willing to live out your truth in a way that properly worships you. Amen. So, let's talk about the story of communion. And all good stories start at the beginning. Any type of story that you've ever been exposed to, most people uh, are at least familiar with, with some version of a story, right? You get introduced to the characters. Somehow, in the interaction of the characters, you, you find some type of problem. They work their way through the problem, Right? Think of any war movie that you've ever seen before, right? You're introduced to Sam Elliott, the absolutely awesome general, and he takes them in, they charge the hill, and, and America wins again. Or because we, yeah. Or, or we, uh, you know, may, maybe you don't like the war movies, you like the love stories, right? These two, two people that couldn't possibly ever have a functional relationship with one another, and they have moments of dysfunction for about an hour and a half, and then eventually they come together, seeing that they need to be with each other forever, right? <laughs> I don't get to watch a lot of these movies because my family is coming out of the young kids stage right now. So all of my stories are like two sisters, one of whom like keeps accidentally freezing stuff, is, <laughs> is like finally finds out that the frozen stuff can teach her about love in some way, right? <laughs> Whatever it is. You want to look at a story and try to understand what's being told, who am I being introduced to, and what's the problem that's being presented. The story uh, that is told to us in Scripture this morning, we are going to look at it, not thoroughly, but we're going to look at a lot of it. By the end of this, you will probably have a paper cut on your thumb. We have Band-Aids to distribute because we're going to be flipping a lot of pages, only because I want you to see the broader story. And this story starts in the beginning, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 2. Go there. <clears throat> in the beginning, God creates everything. He makes man and woman. We're introduced to these two. We call them Adam and Eve. 
And in chapter 2, verse 16, we see God talking to them. 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. God says, Adam and Eve, eat whatever you want, just not that tree. What do Adam and Eve do? They eat that tree. Right? That's just kind of the story. Go over to 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. They took from the tree, the one tree they were supposed to eat from. Look at their immediate reaction. Verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. The first thing that they experience when they deviate from what God tells them to do is they feel like they need to hide themselves from one another. Worse than this, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, what they do? They hid from whom? They hid from God. If you think about how ridiculous that is, this is, this is the guy who made them, knows them intimately, knows everything about them, and they think that they can hide from him. But they're experiencing that something got broken when they decided to not follow what it is that he told them to do. And so in verse 21, it's a verse that's so short, you might, you might kind of read over it when you've read this story, but we're introduced to the beginning of the communion story. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Theologians call what's happening here substitutionary death. That because Adam and Eve had sinned against God and things were broken, God's response to start fixing the problem was not to kill them, but to find some type of suitable substitute, substitutionary death. That's the first part of the story. Thousands of years pass after that, and we get to the next part. Now, there's a bunch of things that happen in that thousands of years. Like I said, we're not going to be able to cover everything. But we, we get to the book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus, we're introduced to God's people being enslaved in the land of Egypt. God tells them, I've got a plan. I'm going to take you out of Egypt, put you into your own land, and in the meantime, I'm going to enact judgment onto the Egyptians for being your captors. Now, if you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments or you've seen some cartoon version of it or whatever the case may be, you know that that judgment came in the form of ten plagues. If you turn to Exodus chapter 11, what we get in Exodus chapter 11 is a description of the 10th plague. In Exodus 11, look at verse 4. 
And the Lord gave the people favor. That's not it. That's three. I was almost there. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. The tenth plague, God tells his people through Moses, I'm going to kill the firstborn son of every family. However, I've got a plan to make this still work for you. Go to Exodus chapter 12 and look at verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a what? A lamb. Baby sheep. Take a lamb from themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, and you are to divide the lamb. God says, hey, all of you, go out and get yourself a lamb and make sure that there's enough for everyone, despite their household size, despite their income level, make sure that everybody's got a lamb. You're going to slaughter this lamb and do two things with it. Verse 7, you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Two things that we see that they're going to do with the lamb. Number one, after slaughtering it, they're going to paint the doorpost of their home with this lamb's blood. But after the blood has been painted on that doorpost, they are to feast on what's left of the lamb. As a result, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. They were going to cover the doorposts with blood. And as a result, God's promise when he encountered the bloody doorpost was to pass over that house not enacting the plague of death of the firstborn child. As a result, this memorial feast became part of the lives of the Jews and was referred to as the Passover feast. Now, this plague ultimately leads to the freeing of the Jewish people. They go out and God strikes a new deal with them in Exodus chapter 24. While you're turning there, I'm hoping at this point, for those of you that have been around the church for a while, you're starting to pick up on some major themes. Lambs, bloods, substitution. If, that's, if it's not ringing any bells, we'll get there. I just I want you thinking. I want you being with me. Okay. We go to Exodus chapter 24. 
And what God has done at this point after freeing the people is he has now made them a people, instituting a deal with them. This deal is often referred to as a covenant where God says, you're going to do these certain things and I will be your God. I will protect you and I will make you flourish and prosper. Look at the people's response in Exodus 24 verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Those of you who are laughing, if you don't know why they're laughing, it's because they kind of didn't do that very well. (laughs) Now, before you're too quick to judge, (laughs) yeah, you wouldn't have done it very well either. Let's just be real. But we'll get there too. But look at what happens in verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Yuck. But why? Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant was the seal of the deal. This was how the people were responding to the deal. And it would be the blood of the covenant that reminded them of the deal that had been struck with them by God. Now, that initial sacrifice that happened then turned into a big sacrificial system for which there's a ton of instruction in the Old Testament. We don't have time to cover any of it, but a couple of important things that I want you to note before we just pass over that idea is that in this sacrificial system, God accepts the substitutionary death of an animal as blood payment for sin. That's one thing. Ought to sound familiar to you at this point. But the other thing, in many of the sacrifices, the people are given the right to feast on the animal that they sacrificed to God. That God is actually interested in dining with his people. He says, look, I will take this substitutionary death of this animal and accept that so that our relationship can be restored. But after our relationship is restored, what do I want to do? Let's have dinner together. That is a beautiful picture. Not that any of your faces in this room are showing it. I don't know how you like to spend your time, but one of, the, one of my favorite things to do, even though I'm an introvert, I love going over to people's houses and just sitting and having a meal with them. There are some great cooks in this church, by the way. Great cooks. And God has set that as a pattern for after that relationship is restored, he sits and dines with his people. This system of sacrifice, of this type of interaction with God, stays in place, kind of, for about 1,400 years. Now, I say kind of, Because the main problem, as we've already addressed, is that the people said, everything that you say for us to do, we will obey. And about three, four minutes later, they start failing. And eventually, their cycle of disobedience leads God to punish them by allowing other kingdoms to come in and rule them. And it goes through this cycle over and over of their turning back to God, saying, God, we're sorry, we're going to obey. And God goes, okay, fine. And he restores them 
only for them to fall away again and to disobey again. And God allows another kingdom to come in and destroy them. And this cycle continues over and over until we get to the New Testament where some of the people have returned to the land and the temple sacrifices have resumed. They've been able to rebuild the temple and God has been speaking to the people through uh, people whose title we call prophets. The final prophet before Jesus by the name of John shows up and starts talking to the people in a way that I want to show you. Go to John chapter 1. This prophet, John, commonly called John the Baptist, was actually Jesus' cousin. Just a little tidbit there, not that important for the message, just in case you go on Jeopardy. Look at John in chapter 1 of John, Gospel of John, different John that wrote it. John the Baptist, John 1, 29. And the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, which is fancy Bible talk for, Hey, everybody, pay attention to me. He points at Jesus and says, What? The Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. The Lamb of God. Not the Lion of God. Not the Bull of God. Not the Goat of God. The Lamb of God. If you were an old-time Jew, that would conjure up a specific image in your mind. Now, not for everybody that was here. They didn't fully understand exactly what that meant, but you started to hear echoes of a story that you've been told for thousands of years when somebody's getting pointed at saying, that's the Lamb of God, and he's going to take away the world's sins. John says it directly to Jesus in verse 36. He looked upon Jesus as he walked and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And people started to figure it out. In verse 37, some of John's followers are like, I don't exactly know what this means, but we're supposed to follow him now? Oh, okay. And they go. You know, there's a lot, I think sometimes we have a tendency to not realize how much uncertainty was going on in people's minds when they were hearing this biblical text. They didn't necessarily know exactly what was happening. And some of the times, if I'm honest with you, uh, Jesus made it even more difficult, not easier for that confusion. Sometimes he enjoyed confusing people just so that they'd have to think through things. One of the most confusing times is relevant to our story. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 51. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he had done so many miracles and was teaching in such a way that he was attracting a crowd literally everywhere he went. He couldn't get away from the crowd. And these people would follow him. Some people were just there to see the circus. Some people wanted to get healed. Some people wanted to hear. Everybody knew something was going on. They just didn't know exactly what. And then Jesus helps the moment by saying this. 
I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Uh, what? If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Those of you that have been Christians for a really long time and have heard the explanation, go back to the first time you're reading this text. This one's weird. The Jews, therefore, began to feel as weird as I'm telling you that you should feel. And we're arguing with one another, how are we supposed to eat this guy's flesh? <laughs> Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, which is one of Jesus' ways of saying, hey, I know that some of you kind of tune out every once in a while. Pay attention to this one, okay? I'm about to lay something down that is crucial for you to understand. All right, cool. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Tell me. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What are you talking about? Look, I, I'm here because my friend had this gimpy leg and he thought you could fix it. <laughs> and you're over here telling me that you want me to eat you? I didn't sign up to be some part of cannibalistic cults. This is weird. We know that they felt that way because of verse 66. That's the way any logically thinking person would think. But verse 66 proves it. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus, I'm out. I tap. I'm done. I don't know what you're talking about, and it's weirding me out. I'm going to go home. Okay? Blessings with that whole kingdom of God thing. And he left. My favorite part of the interaction comes next. So Jesus turns to the 12, the inner core. The ones that he knew weren't just there for the show. And he goes, are you guys leaving too? Simon Peter, in a moment of brilliance, says, where are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. I meant that seriously, a moment of brilliance, because Peter did not always speak brilliantly when he spoke. That's one of the beautiful things about the New Testament story, is that it tells us the truth. But Peter at least knew enough about Jesus at that point to be like, I, 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 we got to stay. I mean, there's something happening here. I love the encouragement that comes with that for me. Sometimes I feel like I have to have my thoughts so neatly organized. I have to know everything. I have to have the answer to every question that anybody could possibly ask me about all this Bible and Jesus stuff. No, I don't. It seemed to work okay for Peter. 
Jesus takes that little bit of faith that's expressed by his followers that didn't leave and takes them to the next level. I want to show you that next level in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we get to the moment in which Jesus is about to celebrate a feast. I'll give you one guess what feast it is. It starts with P and ends with Passover. Whoa. I'm really glad the YouTube feed is not working today. Because it doesn't really matter anything that I would say from this point on. That would be the excerpted part. All right, so they're celebrating the Passover feast. <laughs> Whoops. <clears throat> Just let us all take a moment with that one. I'm glad, I'm glad that this is not a judgmental church. Jesus is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples, and he's been doing this for years, by the way. At minimum, this is the third time he's celebrating with them. They've done this before. This is old hat. Plus, his disciples are Jewish. They've been doing this since they were little kids. So they're not prepared for any of this to be different. Jesus sits down with them for Passover, and we get to Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating... Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I can only imagine that there was at least one guy at that point that's like, Thank God. <laughs> right? Because this is going from a completely different, I have to eat the flesh of this dude, to now he's saying, Hey, this bread is what it is that I want you to eat. And this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink from it, all of you. How many of them? All of them. All. That included Judas, by the way. Just tuck that away in your files. For this is my blood of the covenant. My blood of the what? which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Think about this in a second. What, what's actually being said here? Yahweh, the great I am, the God of the Jews, is the one that made the first covenant. You can't just be some schmo off the street and make a new deal with God's people. For Jesus to say, I'm making a new covenant, that's big time. And like all covenants, there's blood and brokenness and death that's involved. And Jesus tells them, it's going to be me who provides it. And then, what do they do? I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until, from now on until the day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, 
They sat and they feasted together after Jesus was saying it. I'm telling you, at this point, I still would guess that there's some people that weren't getting it. That would be my guess. I'm, I'm not so sure that I would be getting it at this point. But they were being told about a new covenant that would be sealed by Jesus' blood and body. That it would be given to all of them. And then they feasted. And we're told that one day, an even bigger feast is coming. And they left with the joy of that feast so strongly on their mind that they went out singing. That's how happy and celebratory that moment of Passover was. It wasn't some solemn affair where everyone was having to sit there and beat their breasts and think about how terrible they were. They were having a party with one another. Now, just like I said, there are probably some people that still didn't get it and they had to keep talking about it until they probably, they could understand it better. The, the writer of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer is, but if you turn over there, it was written to try to help people like us understand better what was actually happening. And I'm not gonna show you the full passage, I just wanna show you where it is. But in Hebrews chapter nine, the writer of this text tells us about covenants and how covenants made and the role that blood played in that covenant and that it was required. And as he, as he continues to talk through chapter 9 about the importance of blood for the covenants, he then comes to part of his conclusion in chapter 10 and says, for the law, remember that was part of the covenant, that was the deal, the law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It wasn't the very form. Never by the same sacrifices year after year, which they, which they offer continually, they couldn't make perfect those who drew near. The law was just a foreshadow. The sacrifices were imperfect. Verse four, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins Animal blood couldn't fix the problem. What could fix the problem? Verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified, which means taken away from our filth and made righteous and holy and perfect before God. How does it happen? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, understanding this led Christians to celebrate regularly. They actually, when they would get together, they would eat. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what we get is a description of Paul talking to a church about their communion feasts. Real quickly, I want to show you a couple of things about that, though. When Paul was talking to them about their communion feasts, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul was not super stoked about what was going on. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. but in giving you this instruction, I don't praise you. You come together not for the better, but for worse. Here's what was going on. When they got together for communion, and look into it later, I'm just going to go quickly over this. When they were getting together for communion, they didn't have these like 
lame little crackers and weak juice that we had. They actually would get together and have a legit meal, and they would dine together. The Corinthian problem of celebration of communion was not that they were, that they were partying together. That was what they did. It was that they were partying selfishly. Some people were eating all the food and drinking all the wine before the rest of the church got there. And then their brothers and sisters in Christ would show up to the celebration feast, see drunk Uncle Bob in the back, drunk on the communion wine, and be like, I don't feel like celebrating Jesus right now. You're a mess. Paul wasn't happy about this type of interaction that they were having. His concern about their communion feasts was that they understood what it was that they were doing and that they do it in unity. Real quickly, verse 23, he wants them to understand what it was that they were doing. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this while you remember me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul wasn't worried about the Corinthians celebrating too much. He was worried that when they got together, they weren't celebrating in unity and they didn't understand the symbolism behind what they were doing. This isn't just a party for a party's sake. This is a party to get together to celebrate that which Christ did for them and only, according to the author of Hebrews, only Christ could have done for them. So, at the beginning, I had told you about some of the questions that, I had, that we had been receiving about communion. I don't know whether I should be doing it. How do I know? I've heard that if you do it wrong, that bad things can happen. In that text in 1 Corinthians, it actually says some people were dying because they were taking communion wrong. Hopefully with these first two questions, you have some information at this point. When you should be taking communion is when you understand what it is and the celebration that's taking place and that you're willing to celebrate it. You're willing to take the broken body, the blood spilled for you, and trade your sin for it. Yeah, bad things happen according to the text when you take it wrong, but it doesn't mean that there's like some magic sin that if you do it, you don't get to take communion anymore. Or that when you get here that you have to like make sure that all of your ducks are in a spiritual row or that you have to be perfect before you take communion. No, none of those things is what the text is talking about. Paul said what you need to be recognizing is that we're doing this together because the communion that we celebrate is one dying for all. Did you notice how many times that word all was used when we looked at different texts? Not just some, not just Jews, not just men, not just women, not just rich, not just poor, but for all. Offered freely. Now, one last note about the third question. Should I let my kids take communion? 
official church answer. Ready? Maybe. <laughs> Think about it this way. When that lamb got slaughtered and the blood was painted on the doorposts, were the kids in the house? Did the kids understand why dad's out there painting blood on the door? Maybe. Maybe some of them did. Maybe some of them didn't. Now, balance that out with the fact that I just tried to drive home for you that not only Jesus, but Paul wanted us to understand the symbolism of what we're doing when we take communion. And similarly, we should be extending that to our children. But here's our official church position. You're the parent. You're the pastor in your house. You know your kids better than we know your kids. You need to guide your child based upon your assessment of how much they understand, knowing that there are varying levels of understanding. If any of you actually know my family at all, you know that there's varying levels of understanding in my house. And there's varying levels in which some of my family members may not ever be able to fully understand. Taking into consideration that comprehension ability, my encouragement, our encouragement to you is just to know that there's some room for grace. That blood got painted on the doorpost of a house, and everyone inside the house benefited. But the one thing that I would want to say as a point of clarification is that don't think that underneath these nice little wooden dishes are magical items that if you cram them down your kids' throats, they'll get into heaven and you don't have to worry. <laughs> I'm telling you, friends, there's a lot of people, remember you Catholic people that wave back at me? That's kind of how they think about it. Maybe that's the way that you used to think about it. Maybe that's the way you still think about it. That's not true. It's not true. There's nothing magic about these items. They're symbols. But they're symbols of something absolutely beautiful. And we want you to understand what they mean and guide your family well in how to use them. So when we celebrate communion, we remember our past and the things that we have been before God and who God has been to us. We accept his presence right now, recognizing our need continuously to come before him for forgiveness. But we also, and I always, anytime I talk about communion, want to add this part. We also need to be doing this out of celebration. This is not just a somber affair. I understand a place for you to wanting to ask for God's forgiveness. But remember, this was a party. It's a celebration and our future, according to the, the text that we look at, is one of further feasting with God. He wants to dine with us. That's where we're going. That's what's in store for those of us that will receive that blood of the covenant. So here's how we're going to respond. The music team's going to come up, and they're going to lead us through two songs. While the music team is coming up, if you're an elder or a deacon or uh, somebody that helps out in different things, please come up as well. We're going to do two songs. And in those two songs, here's my encouragement about how to use it. During the first song, remain seated. Stay, sed stay seated so that we can pass out the elements. 
Worship there while you are seated. Receive the elements, but hold on to them. We want you to hold on to them until everybody has them because I want to drive home for us the importance that we do this in unity. Then, nice. Way to punctuate that sentence. Then, once we have all received and we're ready to take in unity, we will take together, partake, it's communion, I get to say the word, we partake together, and then we will sing a song of celebration in response. God, use this time for your glory and your greatness. We thank you for even paying attention to us at all. Amen. praises one day when sin was black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin dwelt among men my example is he the word became flesh and the light shined among us his glory revealed living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glorious day Oh, glorious day. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected. Bearing our sins, my Redeemer is here. The hand that healed nations stretched out on a tree and took the nails from me. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the storm rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now is ascended 
hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. The living he loved me. The dying he saved me. The buried he carried my sins far away. The rising he justified freely forever. He's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day, oh glorious day. We proclaim this together, church. One day the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day the skies with His glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one, bring me. My Savior Jesus is mine. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sin far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day He's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day, oh glorious day. living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glorious day oh glorious day Folks, look forward to that. Amen. Hey, uh, everybody have communion? You folks may partake as we celebrate the Lord's birth and birth, Christmas, the Lord's resurrection and his blood shed for us. And as you do that, let's stand together as we, uh, we close in this last song.